On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. For this part of our journey, Mike, we've come to the Mount of Beatitudes, which is uh, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, high up. I can hear a lawnmower in the background, the <laughs> birds singing, the sun is out. Just set the scene for us. Here we are on this beautiful hill on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, the location of perhaps one of Jesus's most famous teachings. And do you know what, David? This is one of my favorite places in the whole of the Holy Land. Just being able to sit here and as we sit here looking south down over the lake, we can look across and see Tiberius to our right. There are the cities of the old Decapolis on the left of the lake. As you go straight down, you're, you're heading towards the Judean desert. To the north behind us is Mount Hermon. And this is such a beautiful setting. It is so pretty, as you can see. And we're high up on this hill overlooking the sea. And it's just wonderful. I think when any people that I bring on tours come here, this turns out to be one of their favourite spots as well. The church, which we'll talk about in a moment in front of us, it's a beautiful octagonal building, and there's lots to say, I'm sure, about that. Mm. But yes, the setting is quite something. And, you know, maybe some visitors from the UK would compare this view looking across the Sea of Galilee a little bit like, uh, you know, the English Lake District or perhaps a Scottish Locks or something. Very much so. Um, but uh, it's, it's really quite special. So, yes, set the scene. We're going to be talking about Jesus' teaching, his teaching. And, and, and so, so why here then? Well, here, because this is the traditional location of that Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, was it exactly at this spot? Well, you know, we can't be 100% sure, but I'll tell you what, if, if it's not where we are sitting now, it is really very, very close. Why? Well, Matthew sets this sermon on a hillside, hence the Sermon on the Mount. If you read Luke's account of this sermon, Luke 6, he sets it on a level place. Aha! contradictions in the Bible sometimes people say but as you can see not at all here we are at the top of a hill overlooking the lake and as we look down the hill in front of us there is a level place a huge natural amphitheater lies just below us so it's really easy to see how Jesus would have stood or sat normally sitting for a rabbi teaching at the top of this hill and being able to address these hundreds, thousands of people who gathered and for his voice to be heard because he's in a natural amphitheater here. So this is that setting of this famous Sermon on the Mount. I mean, when I looked at that area below us just now, it looked like it was planted with acres and acres, hundreds of acres of banana Yeah, absolutely, because they wouldn't have been here in Jesus's time. But it's in that area where the crowds certainly gathered. And just a little to the left of that, the Pope visited here um, some years ago, March 2000, and they made space and preparation for 100,000 Roman Catholics to be able to hear him. Now, not that many came, as it turned out, because I think it rained. 
But that instantly tells you, yeah, the Bible's account of thousands of people gathering to hear Jesus here in this location is very, very realistic and doable indeed. Remind us of the sort of the key parts of what we call the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Well, it, it begins with something that is referenced here in the church that we'll talk about in just a few moments, which is what we often call the Beatitudes. Now, that's not a word that is in the Bible. I always remember being taught as a young Christian, what are the Beatitudes? They are the beautiful attitudes. They're the attitudes that characterize someone who is a follower of Jesus. Blessed are, blessed are, he will go through them. So those eight Beatitudes, he'll go on to talk about how he wants his followers to be salt and light in the world. Then there's a whole section about how he tells them he's come not to abolish the Jewish law, but rather to fulfill it. The word he uses there to fulfill in the sense of bring it to its completion. He then tackles some of the teaching that the rabbis had taught when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you about a whole number of practical issues in life, anger, adultery, divorce, vows you make, taking revenge on people, loving your enemies. And each time there, he's not contradicting what the Old Testament law said, but rather how the rabbis had interpreted it. You've heard it said, brackets, by your teachers, but I'm telling you, and every time he lifts it to a whole higher level, it almost seems an impossible level. And it is without Jesus in our hearts and the Holy Spirit help us. Goes on to teach about giving and praying and fasting, teaches that well-known Lord's Prayer that we'll look at in a future episode and comes down to earth, dealing with things like money and possessions and things like this. The golden rule that he teaches of do to others what you would have them do to yourself. He talks about trees bearing good fruit and how to show you're a true disciple. And he ends up with that parable of uh, building on a good foundation. So there's a whole range of things that he touches. And I'd encourage listeners just to get a Bible after this podcast and to read Matthew 5, 6 and 7 and read it for themselves once again. And hear Jesus' heart. This is my heart for you. This is how you can live. If you allow me into your heart and allow your life to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think what he's underlining is that following him means living differently, radically differently. It's not just a case of, oh yeah, I've received Jesus now. I carry on living life as I used to, but with a cherry on top of the cake. No, this is an utterly different cake. This is looking at life differently, living life differently. This is a radical manifesto for kingdom lifestyle. We're on the Mount of Beatitudes, as it's known, the church in front of us, octagonal I mentioned, so I guess that might be why it relates to the eight Beatitudes. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, this is really beautiful church. It's built in basalt stone, which is black volcanic stone and a, a very beautiful and light church. It was built in the 1930s, constructed between 1936 to 38, 39 and designed by the Italian architect Antonio Barluzzi, actually paid for by Mussolini uh, before he fell out of favour with everyone obviously. And the floor plan of this quite small church 
is octagonal. Therefore, you've got, as you've said, eight walls. And on each of those eight walls are the eight Beatitudes written in Latin up at the top in the couple of the dome of the church. It has beautiful horizontal long windows rather than the traditional church type of the vertical long windows. These are horizontal. And he designed it that way in particular because he wanted people to be able to see out as they were hearing the altar unusually is right in the middle. A bit like for anyone who's been to Liverpool Cathedral, the Roman Catholic Cathedral will know that's the same there. So he put the altar right in the middle with the pews all around and giving everyone the opportunity to look out through those windows and see this beautiful view that we have. Why? Because he was underlining that this teaching of Jesus is not something to be confined within a church. It's given to us in the church for it to spill over into our lives and then out into this world that we can see all around us. One question then about the Beatitudes themselves. You know, they are sort of separated out from the rest of Jesus's teaching, almost as if there's something different, something special. Well, what, what, what is different about them? Well, do you know what, David? I think probably they're separated out more because that tends to be how they're done in our Bibles. You know, our Bibles these days have got chapters and verses which weren't there in the original, of course, put in later to help us find our way around. And they're often given subheadings. And so this little section in most Bibles today would be headed the Beatitudes before it goes on to say salt and light. Now we have to remember first that those headings weren't there. So really these Beatitudes are, they're a foundational part of the teaching, but they're not separate from it. And yet nonetheless, they, they do sort of stand out, don't they? Because I think why, well, because they summarize what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, do you know what? It might even be good just for us to read them again. Here they are. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, do you know what? From the world's point of view, frankly, those are all nonsense. Hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit, or Luke has it even starker, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who know they don't have what they need Doesn't make in sense. life. Doesn't make sense. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. What does our world say? Man, if you are meek and humble, you won't get anywhere. Claim your rights. Trample on whoever you need to, to get the results. So these are 180 degrees inverted from what the world would say in Jesus's day, just as much as now. Do you know, one of the other things I love is as we sit here and we look out over the lake, one of the most obvious things we can see on the western side of the lake to our right is the city of Tiberias. And 
Tiberius was very much a Roman city in the time of Jesus. So there are the world's values. We can look just across the lake a little there and see them. And there, as opposed to that, Jesus says, no, here are the values that characterize those who follow me. The setting for this church on the Mount of Beatitudes is quite something, isn't it? We're surrounded by trees and shrubs and lawn, and in fact, we can hear the lawnmowers in the background. It really is very beautiful, David, and the Roman Catholic Church that's responsible for the Church of the Beatitudes and the Grounds has done an incredible job at, at creating this very peaceful setting. Though, of course, the sermon itself, in a sense, is anything but peaceful. It is troubling. If we take it seriously, it really is incredibly radical. In what sense? Oh, in the sense that it, like we saw with the Beatitudes a few moments ago, turns the values of the world upside down. It says, this is how they live out there, but if you are going to be my followers, this is how I want you to live. And he intends this not as some sort of idealistic thing in the future. This is how you can really live if you follow me and you ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live like this without the help of the Holy Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit, wow, this is how life looks for my followers, utterly transformational, different to the values of the world that surrounds you. Difficult to imagine what must have been going through the minds of those that heard this, you know, the big crowds that could have gathered below here somewhere, and uh, Jesus, what, taking advantage to some extent of the, the landscape, the topography, to act in a kind of acoustic kind of way, to, to, to be heard clearly. Yeah, and you know, the people who heard him would have heard many teachings from many rabbis over the years. But what stands out in the Gospels is that his teaching gathered hundreds, thousands on this occasion. There was something about it that though it was uncomfortable, though it was unsettling, it was also attractive. And you know, it's still the same today. If we take the teaching of Jesus seriously, there is something challenging, uncomfortable about it. It says you can't go on living life as you've always lived. And yet at the same time, something immensely attractive that says, oh my goodness, life like that, wouldn't it be incredible if people set out to be peacemakers and merciful and pursue righteousness all the time. Wow, what a transformation that would have made. So I think as they sat listening to him, one of many rabbis they'd heard, something was stirring in their hearts that there was something different that this rabbi, Jesus, was calling them to and promising. And even today, you know, in our deepest selves, we know that this actually does make sense. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The only way ultimately to prove that is to give it a go. You, you cannot become a theoretical follower of Jesus. You cannot just read it and think, hmm, that's interesting, very moving. Well, you know, it might be very moving or it might be very challenging, but the only way to see whether it works is to see whether it works. And the promise of Jesus is whenever we do what he tells us, and it's been my experience in the many, many years that I've been a Christian now, that when we do what Jesus says and live life his way, it always carries God's blessing. So if you never tried it, try it. Put it into practice. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist said. Put this into practice and you will see that it works. Go on, I dare you, 
risk it. Just zoom in for us, if you would. You gave a sort of brief summary of the Sermon on the Mount just now, but uh, zoom in on, on perhaps a, a particularly pertinent section. Perhaps I could just say one thing, David, before, before I do that. You know, you said the Sermon on the Mount, and some people have asked, it, was this really one sermon, or was it a whole collection of sermons? And uh, the truth is, we're not 100% sure. Why? Well, because at least 34 verses of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are found in Luke's Gospel, but in other contexts. And each of the Gospel writers put their stories together in a way that sort of furthered the particular purpose that they were trying to communicate. So they're all accounts of the life of Jesus, but they all had like an angle. And Matthew was being written for Jewish Christians and Jewish readers. And so he's constantly got that in mind. That's why he quotes so often from the Old Testament scriptures to show people that Jesus fulfilled those promises. And just as the Old Testament scriptures had five books of the law, so Matthew gives us five blocks of teaching of Jesus. So we've got this one here, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but then there are, there are four others that are included as well. We get one in chapter 10, chapter 13, where there are lots of parables, chapter 18, and then chapters 24 to 25. So did Matthew take genuine teaching of Jesus? I'm not suggesting it wasn't genuine at all, but perhaps either take what I believe was a genuine sermon here on this mount, but add some material that he'd heard elsewhere? Maybe so, we, we just aren't sure. But I tell you what, he, he brings about a collection of teaching here that, that is staggering. You asked me for, uh, you know, perhaps one example out of all of them. I almost find it hard to know, but I'll tell you what, here's, here's one staggering one that my eye just falls to as I look down at my Bible. When he does these contrasts, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, how about this one for 21st century Western culture? You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I know we probably all sit there and think, yeah, yeah, that's probably a very wise thing to say. Now, maybe some have slipped and made a mistake in that we can know forgiveness from God but listen you've heard that it was said do not commit adultery but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart wow now that suddenly becomes incredibly challenging God says it's not just the external I'm after what I'm after is such a change in your heart that even to look, if you're a man at another woman or to look at another man and to, let's put it this way, to fancy them. <laughs> Jesus said, you know what? That, that's not my father's way. That's not my father's kingdom. In fact, he goes on to say, that is so wrong, so unhelpful in life that he puts it as starkly as this. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now he's not meaning that literally, he's using picture language there. But what is he saying? He's saying, be ruthless, be radical about these things that want to come and destroy your life. 
looking at others with a lustful eye, inevitably only leads in one direction. So deal with it now. And don't deal with it by simply saying, yes, I must pull my socks up, I must try better. Deal with it by drawing on the grace of God, by asking for the help of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, you know, each day, each moment in the day, Holy Spirit, I need your help here. Grace of God, I need you now. It really is possible to live radically different. And frankly, I can't think of an area in Western culture at the moment where it's more demonstrable that we're living radically different than in the whole area of sexual relationships where the whole culture is sleep around with as many as you like as often as you like until you find the right one and even then you don't have to stay faithful wow how radically different to say i am a follower of jesus and i am keeping myself to my wife to my husband and that is the only place where sexual relationship will take place within my marriage incredibly radically different incredibly challenging but you know what incredibly possible with the help of Jesus. I'm trying to imagine the crowd listening to this and not just sort of uh, nodding in agreement, but actually looking at each other as if to say, are we hearing this right? But the numbers that must have heard this and the crowd that would have gathered, the way in which that impacted all those people, all those families, all those lives as they dispersed from this sort of mountainside back to their homes in the locality. I mean. You can't begin to imagine, can you? No, I, and you know what? I suspect there were different emotions. I suspect there was like the excitement and the joy blessed of the poor or the poor in spirit. Why? Because what were the poor treated like? Well, like they often are today, despised and looked down on. And Jesus has just said, you're not looked down on. You've got the blessing of God on your life. You've got a favour on your life that others don't have. And there will probably be a beam on their faces and in their hearts. You know, maybe for others take that adultery one I've just said where they went away thinking my goodness I need to do something radically different about this or the other sections you know giving to the poor and needy or how you prayed or how you fasted or your attitude judging others that's a big section you know don't don't judge others why are you looking at the the little speck in your brother's eye when you've got a great big log in your own so he's given them up a whole bunch of stuff to think about here and I suspect they went away with different thoughts some encouragements some things to think about and no doubt some things to think I really need to change there don't I and I would hope that's still the attitude we would have when we read this sermon today there's perhaps a parallel between the kind of big meetings that we have still around the world with speaker a preacher mm. and a big crowd sometimes on a massive scale um, but Jesus chose this way of obviously reaching a large number of people and and this Sermon on the Mount was if you like did you say typical of the way he taught yeah well do you know there were a whole number of ways that he taught there were times when he taught like this you know it's fairly lengthy message this if it was given as one there are times when his teaching was done through question and answer there were times when his teaching was done through parables not as pictures as we see in another episode but as the whole message itself so he had a whole variety of methods of teaching you know he didn't just have one you, you know you can hear some preachers whether it's your local 
pastor or priest or some big name, and they only have one way of cutting their cloth. Um, Jesus had a whole number of ways of cutting his cloth, and he used whichever fitted on those occasions. So, bearing in mind that there have been hundreds of visitors here passing through, even as we've been here, how many? There were 20 or so massive coaches in the car park, <laughs> and groups have come and, and read the Beatitudes from their translation or their uh, language, which is beautiful to hear, actually, isn't it? To think that these words are as relevant for uh, sure. us as they're relevant for, for every nationality. In fact, a, a Spanish lady came up and spoke to us just a few minutes ago, didn't she? She did. This older Spanish lady walked past us and she saw us sitting here with headphones and microphones that we were just about to start recording. And she began speaking to us in Spanish. And uh, you sort of said to her, yeah, sorry, we're English, which is shorthand for, you know, we never speak foreign languages for most of us, isn't it? Um, but bless her, she still kept on beaming and speaking in Spanish to us. And then at one point she was saying something and she pointed to her heart, to your heart and to my heart and to heaven and said, Gloria a Dios. <laughs> and we shook our hands and we thought, yeah, we know what you're saying, sister. We're saying, you're saying that we might be of different nationalities, maybe even of different expressions of Christian faith, but we share the same heart, don't we, for God and for Jesus. And it, it was wonderful. And even as I'm talking to you now, just walking across from the church is a, a group of Indian tourists. And it's just wonderful here to see Spanish and English and, and uh, we've seen Italian earlier on and, and here are folk from India. And it brings home this message that this teaching of Jesus, you know, is not white Western Christianity. Come on, where are we sitting? We're sitting in the Middle East. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi first and foremost. And his message, his message of the kingdom and transformational life through the Holy Spirit is, is a message for people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation, as John puts it in Revelation, and just seeing these different nationalities all around us. I just find so exciting. And the way they all smile at one another, and you might not be able to communicate, but you're saying, we, we belong to this same Jesus, don't we? Because this message of Jesus works for people of every nation. It works for people of every strata of society. It works for men, it works for women, it works for young, it works for old. It really does work for everyone, but we need to give it a go to see it working. So a reminder that these words of Jesus that we can read in the quietness of our home are words that we need to carefully consider and, and do something about. Absolutely. You know, reading the Bible is, is not just a religious exercise. It is meant to challenge and change our hearts as well as to encourage us. And just sitting here looking out over the Sea of Galilee from this beautiful setting and thinking back to that teaching that Jesus gave to all those folk listening brings home to me afresh. Yeah, this is a faith for life. This is not just a faith for the future. This is not just a faith to get you to heaven one day, though it does get you to heaven. This is a faith about living radically different lives through having encountered Jesus and depending on his Holy Spirit. And when we do, Jesus is saying in this sermon, these are the sort of things that you should be pursuing and that I can help you to attain. Well, with the sound of the lawnmower in the background and the birds <laughs> singing, perhaps you could just pray with us, for us, in the light of the Sermon on the Mount, here on the Mount of Beatitudes. Lord Jesus, sitting here in this beautiful place, 
looking down from the hill over the Sea of Galilee. We recall your teaching, teaching that is still as relevant today as when it was first given. And we ask that you would help us to embrace it, especially those bits that we find challenging, and would dare to say, okay, Jesus, if you will help me, I will give it a go. Help us as we depend on your spirit to become that radically different people whose lives make an impact in this world, we pray. In your name we ask this. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. (laughs) 